text for you on page 9 of your worship guide, so you have that in front of you. If you are a follower of Jesus, I would encourage you to bring your Bible every week. (coughs) John chapter 4, starting with verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was baptizing, was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God... And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself and did as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Would you pray with me and ask God's blessing on his word, priest? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you um, you are the one who will tell us all things. You are the true one. And your word is truth, and your truth transforms, your truth sanctifies, your truth sets us free. And so we pray, grab our wandering hearts, and by your Holy Spirit, root them in the truth of the gospel. We pray that you would open our eyes and open our ears so that we might be seeing and hearing and then believing all that you say for us. We pray this in your name. Amen. 
Well, I find this I find this to be true about me. I think it's probably true about you too. Um, and it's this that, that I have trouble admitting the darkest parts of who I am, and I, I find that to be true about most of us. In fact, I've I've seldom seen someone who that is not true of. That we are just adept at hiding those dark areas of shame that particularly imprison us the most. And it's partly because we're hiding that we are so imprisoned by those dark areas of shame. A, a rather large study was, was run on 13,000 people. And they found, this is what they found on, on the issue of hiding, particularly secrets. They found that the average person is hiding 13 secrets. That seems like a random number that only researchers would come up with. But the most of us, the average person is hiding 13 secrets. This is what was more disturbing, but I find to be true, that, that of those 13, five are things that we've never told another living soul. And here's what they found. They tested what was the effect that this sort of hiding had on us. And so they, they've set people on, on a, a sort of a journey up a hill. And then and they, at the starting line, they said, we want you to estimate how long, how far away that is. And then they said, we want you to start thinking about the secrets that you're hiding. And here's what they found. That when people started thinking about the secrets that they are hiding, they, they overestimated how long the hill was and, how, and the slope. Because they were so burdened by what the secrets that they are carrying, that the journey in front of them became more unbearable. Left alone, our minds wander back to the secrets of our shame and our pain. And we spend more mental energy trying to conceal those secrets as we mull them over, just afraid that someone's going to find them out. But when Jesus meets us here, in the darkest parts of our shame, we find that he is the deep answer to the cries of our heart, the deepest cravings of our soul. The deepest desires of our heart are meant to be satisfied by knowing God and being known by him. And when he meets us with that deep, satisfying power in the darkest areas of our lives, then we'll truly walk in freedom and satisfaction at the same time. Here's the problem that's being, that John is introducing us to. Jesus' fame has been growing, and the Pharisees are getting a little uncomfortable. And this theme is going to develop throughout John's gospel. And so Jesus leaves Jerusalem where he had been for the Passover feast, and he's heading back up north, um, being the Yankee that he was, leaves Jerusalem and heads to Galilee. That's where he was from where he did the bulk of his ministry. He kind of ventures back into Judea in the south a number of times, but spends most of his time in the north, in Galilee. And in between Judea in the south and Galilee in the north was the area of Samaria. And so he leaves Jerusalem and he heads north. And now most of the most devout Jews would avoid Samaria by heading to the east, crossing the Jordan, going up, and then coming back to Galilee in the north. And the reason was the Samaritans had a sordid history. They broke off from Judea um, and <clears throat> after Solomon's reign, after his death, 
They broke off and established their own kingdom and quickly, very quickly went apostate. They set up alternative worship sites. That's what she's she's referring to when she gets into this theological dialogue about worship sites. They established their own worship sites. They began to adopt the religion of the surrounding areas and became syncretistic. They abandoned God's covenant. God judged them and sent them off into exile into Assyria after hundreds of years of this apostasy. And as was typical of an invading nation, when Assyria invaded them, they moved the Israelites out of the land, and they moved in their own people. And so Samaria became even more of a mixed breed. And so they were viewed as unfaithful, ceremonially unclean, and people, an entire people to be Avoided. That's why John gives us this parenthetical note in verse 9 that the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. But notice this. Jesus doesn't avoid. As we'll see later, he often, he always engages these dark areas. In fact, in verse 4, John tells us he had to pass through Samaria, not as a Not a necessity of convenience. There were other routes for him to go. When John uses the word had in this sense in his gospel, he uses it repeatedly to indicate this is a divine appointment. This is is not the fastest route. Jesus was on his father's mission. This is a divine necessity he has to engage. He had an appointment with the Samaritans and particularly an appointment by God with this woman, the most unlikely of candidates. We're told that Jesus shows up at this well around the sixth hour, which is shorthand for noon, the heat of the day. And to the original readers, they would have heard this as it would sort of clued them in. It would have raised their antenna. Why is this woman in the heat of the day? It's a significant piece of information. Why is she showing up at the the sixth hour, because women who were the ones who typically drew water, as is true in a lot of countries still today, they were typically in the ancient Near East, the ones who drew water for the day. There's no running water in the house. You have to go to the well. Well was outside of town. But in the heat of the ancient Near East, you would go to the well early in the morning or late in the afternoon when it was cool, not in the heat of the day. Not a time of the day that you want to carry a heavy water jar full of heat and The original hearers would have asked the question, what's wrong with this woman? Why is she coming in the middle of the day? And the answer is because she was hiding. She was a serially adulterous woman. As we find out later, she had had five husbands and was living with a man who was not her husband. And so she, with all of her shame, is avoiding the crowds that would have gathered around the the other women who, who would no doubt were talking about her. And the brokenness of her life and the unfaithfulness of her marriages. And so she comes in the middle of the day to avoid the shame of her life. And you see, we're the same. From our first parents onward. From the point that Adam and Eve thrust us into this broken world as broken people. We have been following their pattern of hiding. Immediately they hide from God and cover themselves up with fig leaves and hide from each other the most shameful parts of their lives. 
And here's what's interesting that John is doing. He's taking something that's typically in contrast and saying that they're they are on the surface the same. He's, he's introduced us to Nicodemus, the religious leader, who in John chapter 3 and the serially adulterous woman and all of her sexual immorality in John chapter 4. And, he's, and it's interesting is that they both end up missing Jesus. They both are hiding. And because of their hiding, they miss the light of the world breaking into the darkest parts of their life. The religious Nicodemus is hiding at night. The irreligious woman is hiding in the midst of the day. But both, both are hiding. And isn't that typically what we see? I mean, what we see is like there's the religious people. They're the heroes. They've got their act together. They know God. And then there's the irreligious people, and they're sort of contrasted as two ways. And John, as, here's the right way, here's the wrong way to do life. And John's saying, no, under the surface, they're both hiding. One's using the, their good works to hide from God. One is using their irreligion to hide from God. Why do we hide? Both are just attempts to craft fig leaves. Why do we hide? Because we're so vulnerable. One woman describes sort of this experience of shame this way. This is her story uh, in a short period of time. Her son had had a massive injury to his neck from a football accident. Then she had shortly after that run over the neighbor's dog. Um, and then at the same time, she was a, her husband was a pastor and their church was imploding. This is her account. She says, we opt for hiding over allowing ourselves to be vulnerably exposed because of pride. I don't particularly enjoy falling apart in front of others. There's a real, very real humiliation factor of not having answers, of dwelling in sadness a bit longer than is socially acceptable, or even harboring doubts about my faith. I notice I have to consciously fight against the impulse to present well, and instead allowing my friends and those I lead to see me unraveled in an unglorious mess. You see underneath that, why, why do we feel so afraid so that we hide? Because we're so afraid of being vulnerable because of the deep shame that comes with the brokenness of our lives. Shame's different than guilt. Shame make, guilt and shame, they both make us hide, but for different reasons. Guilt is the feeling I've done something wrong, right? I've broken God's law, and we hide from guilt with defensiveness oftentimes and denial. That's not true about me, and, and I didn't do that. That's our way of crafting fig leaves to deal with our guilt. But shame is more sinister, Shame's more difficult to deal with. Guilt is the feeling I've done something wrong. Shame is the feeling I am something wrong. There is something fundamentally flawed with me that if you knew who I was, you would have nothing to do with me. Brene Brown's done this ton of research. If you don't know her work, you should. On shame, she, she does a great job of diagnosing shame, a terrible job of providing an antidote for shame. But this is the way she... She describes shame. She says, I define shame as the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. 
Something we've done or experienced or has been done to us has created an unworthiness of connection. It breaks down our ability to relate to God and to relate to others. Anne Hetch, who had famously been in a lesbian relationship with Ellen DeGeneres for three years and revealed that she had experienced sexual abuse from her father when she was a toddler until she was age 12. This is what she described. This is what she did with shame. This is the describing of hiding with license. I did a lot of things in my life to get away from what had happened to me. I drank, I smoked drugs, I had sex, I did anything I could to get the shame out of our lives. Nicodemus is hiding under the cloak of his religious works. The Samaritan woman's hiding under the cloak of her adultery. Both are fig leaves that we typically craft for ourselves. And notice this. Jesus has to go out to both of them. Our universal solution to our vulnerability is to be found at our worst by God and loved by him. And that's a paradigm shift. It really turns everything around because we begin to see it's not our sin that keeps us from Jesus. It's our self-sufficiency. And it's our self-sufficiency that Jesus has to break through and he only breaks through with confrontation. Oftentimes it's what it takes is a jarring confrontation of Jesus to break through. It's what God had to do in the garden when he went after Adam and Eve. He had to ask him a very penetrating question. Where are you? What have you done? See, Jesus has this really strange conversation that ends up being confrontational with the woman at the well. He sits down at the well because he's tired and he's thirsty. You just think about that for a bit. The creator of the universe, maker of all things, the one who renews creation, who's sovereign, makes nations rise and fall in the form of a servant takes on such weakness that he's tired in the middle of the day and has to sit down and ask someone else for a drink. And she's taken back by this, by his request. And her response is loaded in verse 9. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? And John tells us why. For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. They're checkered past. They would not share utensils. That's checkered past. There's three strikes against this woman. One, she's a woman. Two, and the disciples are surprised that she's talking. He's talking to her. Strike two, she's a Samaritan. Strike three, seedy past. Jesus is not deterred by this at all. This is a isn't a problem for him. It's an opportunity of engagement. The filth of the Samaritans and the brokenness of the woman won't stick to him. He doesn't mind sharing with the unclean. And so he turns the issue, and this is so typical of Jesus. He often enters into people's lives through the most ordinary, subversive waves, and then just blows us up from the inside out. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, she doesn't get what, she's off, what Jesus is offering. You don't have anything to draw water with, and the well is deep, probably by excavations, uh, by archaeological reference, probably over 100 meters deep or at least 100 feet deep. And then she asks him, by the way, are you better than our father Jacob? And again, G- John had just told us that, yeah, he is better than the father Jacob. Jacob laid his head on the 
ground and saw a ladder reaching up to heaven, Jesus says, I'm the ladder. And so it's like she's at the well and she's like, ask this question, are you better than her father Jacob? Um, yeah. But she doesn't see it. She doesn't get it. So Jesus expands a little. But notice his tenderness, his gentleness, his compassion. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a water, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. She sees this as, look, this is a convenience. I can carry around water with me that just springs. It's like having plumbing. She doesn't get it. Sir, give me this water so I don't have to be thirsty. I have to come to draw water here again. It's almost comical how deeply she's missing the point. Jesus is offering to satisfy her so she'll not be thirsty again. The deep soul level thirst from which all of her cravings arise. And she does not grasp what he's offering. And so Jesus pulls off the gloves in verse 16. Go call your husband and come here. He's gone after the core problem with surgical precision. Isn't it interesting that the very thing that she was trying to hide, the shame of her sexual past, is the very thing that Jesus brings out into the open of his presence. You can't hide from the eyes of God. He who knows all things, sees all things, present everywhere, can't be seen, sees all things, can't be hid from. Jesus sees not just us, he sees into us. But that kind of exposure in the hands of Jesus becomes the point of redemption. He doesn't expose to shame, he exposes shame to heal. See, this woman, she's not embarrassed. Look down at verse 28. If you've got your Bible, it's not printed for you. If you've got your Bibles, look it down at verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see the man who told me all that I ever did. I mean, isn't it interesting that she, she leaves town hiding from her sin, encounters Jesus, he frees her not to hide anymore. Instead, she goes back into town and is rejoicing. He knows everything about me. The most shameful parts of my life in the hands of Jesus. He knows everything about me. Come, I want you to meet this guy. Because being known by Jesus in the place of our deepest shame is to experience the most profoundly satisfying love. And this is what Jesus is committed to. He's committed to bringing himself into the darkest areas of our lives, the deepest pain, by bringing himself and his satisfying presence into the deepest crevices of our hearts. We're set free. You can know me. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, this is what he's promising. Everyone who drinks of this water, come to this water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Do you see what he's saying? He's talking on two levels. He's saying to her, he's no longer talking about the wet stuff in the ground. He's talking about her search for the deep, satisfying source of life. If you keep coming back to the well of your lover's, 
then you'll keep getting thirsty. Do you keep coming back to the well of your performance? You're going to keep getting thirsty. If you keep coming back to performing at your job in the endless pursuit of money, you're going to keep being thirsty. If you keep coming back to being an outwardly religious person and doing all the good things, it will kill you. And you'll keep being thirsty. God made us for satisfaction. He made our desires, and they are meant to be satisfied. I'm going to read a long quote from C.S. Lewis on this. It's just gold. It's worth, it's worth the time. Because this is what Jesus is saying. It's like, look, you're, you're trying to satisfy your desires, your broken desires, and your broken ways. It won't happen. You're just going to keep coming back to this well over and over and over again. God made us for himself. And as Augustine prayed, Lord, I'm restless until my heart rests in you. So this is C.S. Lewis says, says the Christian, this is what the Christian says. This is what Jesus says to us. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for their desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, which, by the way, is all of our deepest desires, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that it does not prove that the universe is a fraud, probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing, if that is so, I must take care. On the one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings. And on the other, not to mistake them for something else, which they're only a kind of copy or an echo or mirage. When Satan put in the heads of our remote ancestors the idea that they could be like God, could set up their own as if they created themselves to be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside of God, apart from God, and out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empire, slavery. The long, terrible story of a man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. The reason why this can never succeed is this. God made us. Invented us as a man invents an engine. A car has been made to run on petrol. And it will not properly run on anything else. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn. Or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other That's why it's just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about himself. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it's not there. There is no such thing. And you see what Jesus is saying. When he promises living water that will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life, eternal life in John's gospel is not a really long time. It's not a measure of quantity. It's a measure of quality. It's eternal life is life that comes from God himself, from the realm of new creation, from the realm of life. And Jesus, what Jesus is promising, 
It's a reference. He's, John's going to develop. It's a reference to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. God will come and take up residence in you and will satisfy your internal desires with himself. That's what living water is. If you go outside of the realm to the created thing to satisfy our desires, you'll be thirsty again. But if you go to Jesus, he will give you God himself, God his Holy Spirit, and you will never thirst again. A contrast to the created wells, the self-constructed wells of our career or our pleasures or sex or performance. The created wells are inherently, by design, insufficient. They are created finite things and cannot dissatisfy the infinite desires that God has created in our hearts. And see, watch what happens here. It's a little picture of the cross. Because the woman says Jews and Samaritans don't share cups because we're unclean. You know, we don't have anything to do with each other. We're unclean. And don't you know how unclean I am because of my sexual past? If you were a devout Jew, you would have nothing to do with me because my uncleanliness would wash off on you. Now watch what Jesus does. He almost says to her, look, that's not how I work. None of your uncleanliness will defile me. Rather, if you come to me, I'll wash you. You will be clean. So clean that my Holy Spirit will come and take up residence in you. You'll become a temple of God, the household of God. And his presence will work towards the endless satisfaction of all of your desires. Now you may be saying to yourself, I had that experience once. It did satisfy. It doesn't anymore. And again, we're drawn back to the problem is not in anything but our hiding and our self-sufficiency. Oftentimes it's because we just don't want Jesus to break into those dark areas of our lives. Notice what she does. Verse 28, again. Again, it's not printed for you, but verse 28. She leaves her water pot behind and went away to town and said to the people come see a man that has told me all that I ever did can this be the Christ they went out of town and were coming to him I think again John is John's talking on two levels here because remember, the water pot is so much more than just what she's putting physical water in. It's all of her endless ways of seeking to satisfy her own desires, covering her shame, and she leaves it behind. And she goes back into town a free woman. Welcome to the Christian life. This is what it looks like. I'm going to... I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to try to cover my shame with my performance. I'm not going to try to numb my shame with my pursuit of pleasure. I'm not, I'm going to leave that here, Jesus. I want to drink again. I want to drink again of the living water that is you and your spirit and your father's love. So I want to invite you to confront me. 
because I know there are places in my life that God, you've got to break through. So please confront and expose so that I can drink deeply of your refreshing forgiveness of sins so I can drink deeply again to see that I'm already righteous by faith in you and I don't have to build it for myself. Come, come shatter my attempts to drink pleasure. Do whatever it takes because it's killing me. I don't want to drink from the water that is your spirit again and again and again. Let's pray.